All right, well, good morning, church. Kids are dismissed. They can head out there. Um, and as they're heading there, I'll just uh, welcome you. Glad that you're able to be here and worship with us here at Parkview East. My name is Doug Fern. I'm the campus pastor here at East, and it's a joy to be able to be with you this morning. Um, tonight is the Super Bowl, right? Tonight is the Super Bowl. Yeah. And expect a similar response to what I'm going to say next. And this morning... We're going to talk about divorce. <laughs> so, I don't know if you see the connection there. I don't either, but um, just want to throw it out there and get it out, get it out on the table right away, right? Before we open up this morning's text, we were walking through the book of Mark as a church, and I think one of the awesome things about walking through Scripture this way, walking through books of the Bible, is that you come across topics like this, um, and, and you, can't, you can't avoid them you got to talk about them, right? And so it's in the Bible. It's helpful. It's useful for us this morning. And so um, our, our prayer is that Jesus would be glorified. You would be challenged, that we would be, be challenged just to live lives in accordance with his will as a result of our, our topic this morning. So we're in Mark chapter 10. I would invite you to, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to open them up. If you do not have a Bible, you could raise your hand, and we have, we have uh, some in the back and come around and, and deliver to you. So... Before we read the text for this morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 12 specifically this morning. Before we read the text, I just want to kind of preface this morning's talk with, with a couple of different words. The first word is just a word of sensitivity, okay? This topic, the topic of divorce, I, I would be willing to wager that there is nobody sitting in this room this morning um, who cannot, who, who can say that they have not felt the effects of the reality of divorce in our culture on your life. I, I would be willing to wager every single one of us here this morning, um, maybe there's some of us this morning who have experienced divorce, who have been divorced. Uh, maybe there's some of us who, who are, are the, the children of a marriage that experienced divorce. Um, and, and I'm sure that many of us have friends, siblings, family members who have, who have gone through a divorce. It is an incredibly sensitive and incredibly delicate Topic. It is for us today, and what we'll find out as we get into the text is that it was in Jesus' day as well. Incredibly sensitive topic. It is a topic that involves a lot of pain. It's, it's a topic that involves a lot of anger. Um, it, it's a topic that can even involve a significant amount of trauma. And so this morning, as we look into um, the Lord's Word, our encouragement from God's Word this morning, um, there's a lot of different angles we could go. We could go an angle of compassion. We could go an angle of conviction. Um, and, and really, what, there's a lot of different things that I could say on, on the topic of divorce. And I'm going to try as hard as possible this morning to just stick with what's in our text before us, okay? Um, it's a sensitive, sensitive topic. And the second word I would say for us before we get into the word, um, it's, it's a word about singleness, a word about singleness. I'm going to be very sensitive to the fact that we have, that among us this morning, there are many single brothers and sisters. And my hope is that for you, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you are single, you are not married, my hope is that our call for this church is that sometimes you walk into a church and you can almost feel like the church can elevate marriage above any other sort of marital status. And, and we don't want to do that, 
right? We don't want to do that. There's a beauty and in, in, in a wonder in the context of marriage and the institution of marriage, but there's also likewise a beauty and a wonder in singleness and what it means to be single. Tim Keller is really helpful. He points out the importance of this topic, the topic of marriage and divorce. If you're here this morning and you're single, this topic is just as important and just as relevant for you this morning. He says that without a balanced, informed view of marriage, you risk either over-desiring marriage or under-desiring marriage. Either of these can threaten or distort your life, okay? It can threaten to distort your life. So it's very important if you're here this morning and you're single that you have a well-balanced, biblically informed understanding of what marriage is. It's also really interesting, if you think about Christianity within its context, he goes on and says that really when, when Christianity came on the scene, it was really the first of the ancient religions to really affirm and, and elevate singleness even, right? In, in ancient context and ancient religions and cultures, life was incredibly centered around the family. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul suggests that singleness, being single is good and blessed by God. And in many situations, it's better than being married, all right? And, and this was a revolutionary thought in word during that time. Single Christians in the early church were, were bearing witness to the fact that their hope was in God and not in their family. That their identity was primarily in Jesus and not in their mate, right? That there was this awesome thing that happens in marriage and there's also an awesome thing that happens in singleness. And so as we turn our eyes specifically to the institution, the design of marriage, if you're here this morning and you're single, um, this is a great opportunity for us as a church to, to talk about marriage. And there'll be times as we go through God's word where we will specifically address being single, all right? So, couple of words just to preface this. I'm going to go ahead and, and read our passage this morning. We're in, like I said, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Pharisees came up and in, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they no, are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we um, consider... Father, the institution, the gift of marriage, Lord, and the reality of divorce. Father, I pray that you would allow our hearts to be unlike the hearts of the Pharisees that were hardened and calloused with sin, Father, but that our hearts, that the hearts of your people this morning, Lord, would be hearts that are moldable, Lord, and that are shaped primarily by your word. 
Father, Lord, I pray for, just as we talk about this topic, Lord, I pray that your word this morning would be an encouragement, Lord, to your people. Lord, that it would bring even healing to people who know the pain and have experienced, um, Lord, the pain of divorce. And Lord, I pray above it all, Lord, that you would be exalted, that you would be elevated in this place, and that your people would be edified. Lord, we love you, and we ask now that you would take these eternal truths, Lord, and that you would write them into our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Here at school, we have a number of different toys, okay, that kids play with from time to time. Now, Friday, I found myself in a room where I was helping a student transition from one part of the school to the next, and they were playing with one of these toys. And, and I began to look at the toy, and I had seen it from a distance before. Uh, but there was something Friday that about this toy that just drew me in. It was like a magnet, all right? And, it, and the toy was called, spelled S-A-N-D, but it's pronounced sand, sand. It's like sand, but a little thing above the A, sand, all right? It's kinetic sand, 98% sand, 2% polymer, and it is wonderful. It really is wonderful. Kids will play with this sand. They will mold it. They will shape it. It, it flows together and it stays together. It doesn't get on your hands at all. The producers, the makers of sand say that it brings all the fun of the beach sand indoors without any of the mess. You can mold it, you can sculpt it, you can write on it, just like wet beach sand, but sand is completely dry, and it only sticks to itself, not your hands. 2% polymer, 98% sand and 2% polymer, and oh boy, what a difference that 2% makes. <laughs> it's an ingenious Swedish invention. It is quite remarkable if you do not have some. I mean, I went in there to help the student transition and the student left and I was still <laughs> cleaning up the sand, if you know what I mean. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But it molds so wonderfully. It, it's so soft. I mean, it, where normal sand has a coarse, gritty texture, sand is soft, draws you in, right? Sand for me on Friday really was, you know, if you remember the text that we're in here, this passage, Mark 8 through Mark 10, really is a passage about discipleship. And if you remember last week, we talked about three different marks that a disciple should have on their life, what an authentic follower of Jesus should look like. What one of we'll discover this morning really a whole nother mark, a whole nother thing that should, that followers of Jesus should have, what they should be like. And Sand really gives us a good picture of what a follower of Jesus' heart should look like. Somebody who follows Jesus, somebody who follows Jesus should have a heart that is soft, that is moldable, right? That draws you in. And really, when we look at the text this morning, that's kind of the big idea of this text. Kind of the subtext, the thing that runs throughout it is this issue of marriage and divorce. But what we'll see this morning is that by, by speaking Jesus, by speaking a strong word against divorce and for marriage, Jesus shows us that a Christian's heart is to be obedient to 
and transformed by God's word. That's what our hearts should look like. This morning, as we walk through this text, we'll look at the question of divorce, then we'll see the design of marriage, and then finally we'll learn about the grace of Jesus. So first is the question of divorce. Um, Wendell Berry, uh, one of my favorite authors, a poet, novelist, essayist, environmentalist, a farmer, said recently in a film that's based on his life, he said, we all come from divorce. He says, this is an age of divorce. What does he mean? Think about our age and the things that have been divorced, things that have been brought together that no longer belong together. They have been taken apart, love and sex, food and farms, divorced, family and family time, politics and integrity, wealth and sharing, generosity, relationship and face-to-face communication. Wendell Berry says, we are living in an age of divorce. I think he's got a lot that's true about that statement. But I can think of all those things as the church, as God's people, when we think about this age of divorce, there should be, there should be nothing that quite breaks our heart like the divorce of a man and a woman. It should break our heart. And this is exactly the question that is brought to Jesus as he comes down. Now he's within the, he was on the mountain. He was teaching primarily to his disciples and they're kind of on their way to Jerusalem. The, the cross is, is kind of in view and has been in view for the last couple of weeks now. And as they make their way towards Jerusalem, he is really teaching them about discipleship and what it means to follow them. And he has kind of gone from his private ministry teaching his disciples and and in dialogue with them, and now he steps back into the light of the public view, and, and this is what he's encountered with. Verse 1 says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, it was his custom. He taught them. He resumes his public ministry. He's on the road to Jerusalem, and discipleship is on his mind. In verse 2, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They, they, they try to test him. This is not the first time that they're trying to trip up Jesus or to test Jesus. It's not the first time that they've done that. They, the truth is they probably already know. Jesus spoke earlier in Matthew in chapter 5. He already spoke kind of where he stands on the position of divorce. Odds are they already know where Jesus stands on divorce. They're trying to establish here with this question that Jesus could potentially contradict Moses. Right? That he could potentially contradict Moses. They saw that John the Baptist took a stand against divorce. Specifically, he stood opposed to Herod Antipas, who, the divorce of his wife and the remarriage to Herod, Herodias. This was a politically dangerous move. It cost John his life. Right? So if they can get Jesus to kind of put down his feet on a particular side of this debate, it will mean somebody will be opposed to him. Right? There's this ongoing this is a simple, simple trick. It's a trick question. The issue of divorce was a controversial issue within Jewish culture. The topic was one that was debated and it was one that was divisive. Regardless of which position Jesus landed, he would surely cause some to oppose him. So how does Jesus respond to this test, this trick question? He answered them. He said, well, what did Moses command you? 
does not sidestep the issue. Rather, Jesus plunges directly into the very source of the controversy. He addresses it head on. Jesus, by first he does this by pointing back to Moses, the authority that these Pharisees would accept. And this is a reference to what is stated in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses specifically addresses this issue of divorce. This is a reference here. I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she debarts out of his house, and if she comes and becomes another man's wife, and later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And so the center of this controversy that was that the Jews kind of divided up on the issue of divorce really centered around this term, some indecency. Some indecency. It was one that was interpreted a variety of different ways. What does Moses mean by some indecency? I can issue a certificate of divorce to my wife if she, if she embodies some sort of indecency. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's two groups that have different views. One group followed the teaching of Rabbi Hillel. This is a very lenient, liberal understanding of the word some indecency, right? That, that some indecency could mean, for example, uh, burning of toast at breakfast. That was an indecent act, completely an abomination, totally unacceptable. Here's your certificate. We're done, okay? Very liberal, lenient. It could mean that she's not listening to her husband, that she's not being able to be controlled by her husband. It, 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 whatever... The case was, really, a man could issue a certificate of divorce, a tremendous amount of freedom, great liberal sort of perspective. Now, the other group followed the teaching of Rabbi Shammai, which was a totally different, more strict, conservative view of this term, strictly referred to a premarital sexual sin. So the idea here is that if a man and a, and a woman get married, and then the man discovers that the woman that he married was not a virgin when they got married, then this would be some indecency. And this would be an act that could justify issuing a certificate of divorce. So there's really two different sides. A very liberal understanding, a very loose understanding of the term some indecency, and a very strict conservative view. The intent of this certificate... The reason that Jesus or that Moses would, would issue this is absolutely critical for us to understand. This was a patriarchal society. If you notice in Deuteronomy 24, the option is for a man to divorce his wife, not the other way around. Until this time, what was happening was that men would divorce a woman. There'd be no certificate. The woman would maybe be sent out. Maybe she would remarry somebody else. She would maybe accumulate another dowry, get some sort of wealth, and then the man would take her back. And so really what was happening, as John Calvin says, is, is at this time, men were pimping out their wives. They were exploiting women. So this certificate it really wasn't even a means to grant permission necessarily as much as it was primarily a means to protect women from being exploited by their husbands. Not necessarily designed to grant permission. The question was not, may a divorced woman marry again because remarriage was permitted and even expected. The big question was, what are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? Deuteronomy 24 does not demand divorce or necessarily even give permission. Rather, it presupposes its existence. It was a reality. Divorce was 
happening. Instituting the law of a certificate of divorce, men would have to issue it to the women, showing that they were free to remarry. This would protect them from being taken advantage of further. It was also able to give a, the second husband confidence that, that what he was committing to, that he was not committing adultery by marrying this woman, okay? So that was the intent of it. They said, in the, in the response, as Jesus asked this question, what did Moses say? He said, Moses allowed, in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, why would God do this? Why would he give this option? We learn in verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. So Jesus is not necessarily condoning it. This is a concession to the sinful nature of the human heart, right? Jesus calls out their hard-heartedness, stubborn resistance to God in his law. This is ultimately what we see as a cycle that's playing out here, right? God designs, institutes, gives us this wonderful gift of marriage and they take marriage, and because of the hardness of their heart, the sinfulness of their heart, they exploit it, they pervert it. So then Moses then gives them this certificate, and some hundreds of years later, they come before Jesus, and what has happened? The exact same thing, right? Marriage is being exploited. They're dividing over what is justifiable grounds for divorce, right? This cycle is repeating itself because they haven't dealt with the root issue, which is the hardness of their heart. Because of the, and it's so interesting to me that Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this command. Not the hardness of their heart, but this is because of the hardness of your heart. They bring to Jesus what they believe to be a substantive debate, a significant riff within their culture. And Jesus takes that debate and he goes right to their heart, right to their heart. The whole reason why God, through Moses, allowed for divorce was because of the hearts of men were hard. They were not molded and shaped by God's word, overcome by a sense of awe of who God was. So for us this morning, I think we would do ourselves great justice, regardless, married or unmarried, divorced or not divorced, young or old, it doesn't matter. What we should do this morning, primarily, before we think about, is this divorce okay? Is that divorce okay? Should they have gotten divorced? Should I have gotten divorced? Before we do that, what we need to do is look at our hearts. Some of you are here this morning and your, your heart is not moldable. It's not like sand, right? It's not. It, when it hears God's word, it, it, God's word has a hard time penetrating it because it's hardened, calloused by sin. It's not responsive to God's word, shaped and molded by God's word, regardless of what the issues are that you struggle with this morning, pride, greed, materialism, consumerism, sexual immorality, lust, adultery, regardless, it stems from a heart issue. How is your heart? How is your heart this morning? What, it, what I love a passage in Ezekiel 36, 26. We see in Ezekiel 36, it's a wonderful, beautiful passage about what God does with his people. God is like this master 
surgeon. And when you come into his family, what he does, it's this wonderful, beautiful mystery. He pulls out his surgical utensils and he performs heart surgery on us. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone, your hard heart from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. He gives us a living, soft, moldable, teachable heart that receives God's word with joy and responds to it and lives according to God's word. It's a form of spiritual surgery. That's what he does. If you're here and you claim Jesus as your king and you've given your life to him, you have a new heart. You have a new heart. He cuts into your life, removes that callous heart that's been hardened by sin in a sense of self-fulfillment, and he replaces it with a new spirit, a new heart, one made of flesh. It's soft, impressionable, and responsive to God's word. This heart is living and molded by the word of God to shape the people of God for the glory of God. That's what our hearts are to be like. This is exactly what marriage is designed to do. It's exactly what we see with this gift of marriage. So then Jesus responds ultimately by this question of divorce by giving them an answer that tells them about marriage. That's right where he goes. Verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Jesus goes back even before Moses and takes the Pharisees to Genesis, where the sacred institution of marriage was originally created. And he is emphasizing the original design of marriage over and above the legal provision for divorce. Marriage was designed, created, and instituted by God. It is God's idea, not man's. It is taking them back to this account and emphasizing, ultimately, just two points this morning I want to share about marriage. First is intimacy. He emphasizes the intimacy of the marriage relationship. It is in the context of marriage that we are able to experience the deepest intimacy of all earthly relationships. That's what's unique about marriage. It is an intimacy that involves the joining of flesh or the mingling of souls. Unlike that of a sibling relationship or a parent-child relationship or a friend, it's the deepest intimacy possible to become one. The Bible says elsewhere it's a profound mystery. It's incredibly mysterious what happens in the context of marriage. This relationship, it's deeply, deeply intimate. And the next thing that we learn as we examine his words is that marriage is not just intimate and deeply intimate, it's also permanent. It's also designed to be permanent. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage was designed to not be breakable. It is a spiritual and a physical mingling of lives. It is designed to endure. God's design is right here before us this morning. Marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman, and God's design is for that marriage to last a lifetime, to endure through a lifetime. It is an intimate relationship, but it's more than just an intimate relationship. It is one that is formed through ceremony, through covenant, through contract. It's legally binding. It's strictly formed and centered. If it was not, you know, if it was strictly formed and centered on intimacy and emotions, well, those come and go, right? But the, the beauty, and some of them come and go a little quicker than you might think, right? It's like, wow, right? 
a couple weeks into it, and, you, and it gets real. The struggle is real, right? But it's not just intimacy and emotions, right? It, 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 marriage was designed to endure when those intimacy seems to fade, when the emotions kind of switch, right? Marriage is illegally binding. It's a contract. And this is super helpful. I think what's, what's challenged for us is this was given in sort of a covenant community, in a covenant culture where covenant really meant something. In our day, it's, more, it's less of a covenant culture and more of a consumer culture. And that's the challenge for us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see divorce rates increase like twice um, as much since like 1960. Divorce rates increase because our culture is consumeristic. It's all about what, what is going to fulfill and satisfy me. It's self above group, right? In the covenant context that this was given, it was a, a covenant c- culture, right? And so it involved more than self, and really what was at stake was what's the best interest of the group, Right? And this is what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the value of the group. Our actions, our choices, our lifestyles are filtered through how they impact those around us, not just how they impact me. Right? And this is a challenge that we have as we lay our culture against what Jesus is calling us to, is that it kicks in certain places. And this is one of those places. Our culture would have us think that marriage is all about self-fulfillment and what it makes you happy right? But this is not how God designed it to be, right? It's not. And I, and I don't say that loosely, right? I don't just throw that out there because there are, there are marriages. The truth is that there are marriages in this room right now that are struggling. There are marriages that maybe they haven't now, but they've endured through some struggle. It, it, is, it is difficult, it is difficult. And I think one of the greatest disservices that we do oftentimes as a church is that we feel like we have to walk through those doors every Sunday and act not just like I got it together, but like we got it together. That's a huge challenge for the church. Because if you show up here, if you're at home and you're having a difficult time with your relationship and it's struggling and there is controversy and there is conflict and there is anger and there is emotion and then you walk through these doors and you look around and you see, well, nobody else experiences this. Am I a freak? Is this just abnormal? Is something wrong? It's No, you're a human being who's married to another human being. That's the problem. You've taken, you've compounded the sinfulness to some degree. And we don't do ourselves a service by walking in here and not being real about who we are. And if you don't have men and women and couples and community groups that you can lean into when things get rough, then it... you. It's going to be even harder. That's why it's so important for us to be real and to be accessible to one another, right? It's so, so necessary. God's good design in marriage is ultimately an institution designed to help us understand his covenant-keeping love. In the Old Testament, Yahweh and Israel, it was a covenant, right? And he had a, it was described like a marriage, this Israel, this nation was constantly rebelling against God, rejecting God, yet in his faithful, loving kindness, God remained faithful to his covenant, to his contract, continually wooing 
her back. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. The picture that we get of marriage in the Old Testament is of Yahweh in the nation of Israel, right? She remains unfaithful, yet, yet God stays faithful. He loves her. And then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes and establishes his church. And what does he call his church? He calls her his bride. He calls her his bride. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The picture that we get of God's faithfulness in the New Testament is of Jesus and his church. It's, it's a picture of a marriage. Now, just a couple of quick things because there's some, there's some big things I just, we just want, I want to throw out there and then you can do a little research. If you have some questions, you can always engage me via email or whatever. A couple of quick things I just want to say about divorce. First of all, divorce is not always sinful. It's not always sinful. Some Old Testament texts that the Lord divorced suggest that the Lord divorced his people. Jeremiah 3.8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. What God has joined together, let no man separate. He says in the text, this implies that the couple can be separated. That divorce, when it happens, can actually happen. Like, it, it's a real deal. There actually can be divorce. There, some people would say, well, they're not really divorced. God would look at them and say they're still married in his eyes. No, if they're actually divorced, all right? It can actually happen. The second thing I'll say is that the Bible makes clear grounds that divorce is permitted, not required or demanded, but it's permitted on grounds of sexual immorality. We see that in Deuteronomy 24. The parallel account to our passage in Mark is in Matthew 19, where he gives what's known as the exception clause. Exact same account, a few different words, and this is what he says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. All right, so there's this exception clause that divorce is permissible under the grounds of sexual immorality. Why would Matthew include it? Well, I think the better question is why did Mark not include it, okay? I think the reason why Mark probably didn't include it is because it was a given. It was a given. In fact, sexual immorality was punishable by death, right? So it would make total sense that he wouldn't even need to say that, right? Because it's already a given. No one in Judaism disagreed that divorce was acceptable on grounds of sexual morality. It simply wasn't a debate at the time. And the third thing I'll just say real quick is that divorce is permitted on grounds of desertion of an unbelieving spouse. We see the grounds for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now this is the traditional Protestant view of the kind of position of divorce, marriage, and remarriage. This is written down in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Two grounds, sexual morality and desertion. Now, I will say just real quick that there, um, I, I think that there are, if you were to think of all of the situations, there are virtually an unlimited amount of situations where marriages, 
you know, go, whether it's abuse, for example, all kinds of different things within the context of marriage. And I think what Jesus is avoiding here, and I think what he's avoiding in the New Testament, not because he doesn't, I think it's because it's not his concern. His concern is the heart. And so what he's not going to do is issue us a list and say, these are all the things that are permissible. He, he doesn't do that. And I think for good reason. Likewise, I, don't, I think it would miss the point if that's what we search for. If we search for a list for what justifies, what is grounds for divorce, I think that misses our point. And, and very cautious when I say that. My suggestion would be if that you are here this morning and it's divorce is something that you've contemplated, what oftentimes happens is that because people know the position of the church, they know that I can't bring this issue to the church because I know what they're going to say. And so the response is they don't involve the church. They don't involve the church. And my suggestion to you this morning is that if your marriage is in trouble, that the first place that you should go is the church. The first place you should go is the church to get help, to, to help invite the church into that decision-making process to walk through God's word together and see what his word says. There are lots of passages, and I personally would be thrilled to sit down and read them with you, okay? Jesus has an amazing view of marriage. He designed it. He died for his bride. Marriage is a big deal. If there's one thing you, if you're thinking of divorce this morning, if there's one thing I want you to walk away thinking is, don't divorce. Jesus, Jesus loves marriage, okay? Again, there's grounds in scripture for it, but that would just be some general advice. Um, again, it's important for us to be real, and I think that we have to create a, a struggle or a culture here where the struggle is real, where marriage is concerned. Um, just real quick, I think it's really important for us if we pull back from the passage real quick. And what I want to show you is, is to me, a place in scripture where Jesus interacts with somebody who's been divorced. And I want you to see how incredibly wonderful and gracious he is with that person. It's found in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. So if you have your Bible, just turn, you can turn there real quick. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I would like for you to at least know the story because I think it's super helpful. Because sometimes where divorce is concerned, sometimes where divorce is concerned, the church has a history of being judgmental. And what I love about Jesus, he's not. He's not, right? That regardless of the sin in somebody's life, Jesus' grace is extended to them. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to see happen. John chapter 4. What we see in John chapter 4 is this is a famous story. If you've been around church much, I, I do pray that you are familiar with it. It's Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? And this serves as kind of a primer on the wonderful grace of Jesus as he confronts racism and sexism that was prevalent in the culture. This grace is a grace that invades every area of this person's life. And if you're familiar with the story, Jesus left Judea and he was headed towards Galilee. On his way, he passed through Samaria. This was the most direct route, but it traditionally would have been avoided by Jews, right? Because if you're familiar with the story, you know that there is a great division. There is great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is an ethnic and religious difference and um, divisions that stem some 700 years. This is a deep, deep division, right? It's very deep, very significant. Jesus passes through Samaria and he sits down at a well. It's about 12 o'clock. It's about noon. And there comes to the well a woman. 
This woman is a Samaritan woman, and she chooses to go to the well at a time when it would be least likely that she would bump into any of the other women from the village, right? She's at a time of day when it's hot outside and people are not there typically drawing water. And she comes to the well and she sees Jesus. And as we read on in the story, we uncover the fact that this woman, Jesus says, has been married some five times and the person that she is with is not even her husband. So this is a woman who knows divorce well, okay? She knows it well. Jesus crosses ethnic and cultural boundaries by even engaging her. He starts out by asking her for a drink. She's shocked. How can you, a Jew, ask me? How can you, a man, ask me, a woman, for a drink of water? This is not the way it's supposed to go. It says, I ask you for a drink, but I can give you living water. Jesus offers her living water. His conversation with this woman is designed to show that the grace of Jesus overcomes her sin and her shame. It reaches her in her darkest part of her life and her heart, a heart that has probably been calloused and hardened by not just her sin, but the sin of others. Jesus doesn't ignore her past or her sin. He deals with it. This woman had been a poor steward of her thirst. She was thirsty, clearly. She was drinking from the wrong well. She had a thirst that only Jesus could satisfy. A grace that will be realized eventually when Jesus would go to the cross and would die for the very sin that held her captive. The sin that kept her from going to the well at noon to avoid people. Jesus meets her where she is so that he can take her where she needs to be. John 4 ultimately is about change. We know later on in the story that the woman will go back to her town. She will tell others in the village of this wonderful person that she met at the well and all that he did for her. And many will come to know and experience this very grace that she drank from that day. See, a disciple's heart is not self-seeking, self-defensive, or sin-hardened. It is a heart that has been softened by the grace of Jesus, molded and shaped by the word of God. John 4, the story of this Jesus and the Samaritan at the well, is a beautiful reminder this morning that many of us are in need of God's grace and none of us are beyond God's grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you. Lord, for what really is a difficult teaching. Lord, we know that your story, that your teachings, many of them are difficult. Father, but we also know that they are true. And Lord, you have a beautiful, beautiful view of what marriage is, what it was designed to do, Father, as it reveals in us the glory and the wonderful love that you have for us, Lord. And it also shows us sin, and it's useful in so many ways, Lord, changing us, Father, and growing us into likeness of you, Father. And I pray right now specifically for anybody in this room, Lord, now whose marriage is struggling. Lord, I pray that they would see your church and your word as the first stop on a road to help. Lord, I pray that as they come to your word and and they read your words, Father, and they understand who you are, Lord, 
Lord, I pray, I pray that you would give them a heart that is soft, Lord, a heart that is moldable, that is shaped by obedient to your word and transformed by your word, Father. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would have a culture here where it's okay to not be okay. That we would be able to bring whatever challenges, whatever sin, whatever difficulties that lie before us, Lord, and that we would, as the people of God, come around one another, that we would speak grace into each other's life, Lord, that we would be present in one another's life, and so that those 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 paths that we have to walk down that are difficult, that are painful, Father, that we would not walk down them alone, but we would do so linking arms with one another and following hard after you. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who does not know the grace, Lord, that you accomplished on the cross, Father, I pray that this moment, this morning, that we would bring our sin to you, Father, that we would lay it on the cross and we would receive the gift of your grace and it would invade every part of our life and transform every part of our life, Father. We love you. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.